Very good. Very good. Okay, good morning, everyone. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you knit together your faithful people of all times and places into one holy communion, the mystical body of your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant us so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that together with them we may come to the unspeakable joys you have prepared for those who love you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The verse of the week, everybody should know. This is John 3.16. Let's speak this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay. Oh, no. Okay, it's running out of ink. God is who? Yeah, Father. The Father. His only begotten Son. This one's obvious. That's the Son. Here's the question. You know the Father and the Son are here. Do you think that the Spirit is here too, or is this just about the Father and the Son? <laughs> Yes, the, the Trinity doesn't function in, or the persons of the Trinity do not function independently. Uh, that's actually a heresy, that they are distinct entities that function apart from each other. So anytime there's one member of the Trinity, they're all there. And very, uh, very often in creation, or in scripture, you see them all listed there, like in creation. The Father, God uh, wants creation and he speaks, that's his word, and the Spirit hovers over the face of the deep. That's the Trinity. So where is the Holy Spirit here? Well, he helps us believe. Aha! Yes, good! That whoever believes. What do you know from the third article of the Creed? What do you believe about yourself? Yes, that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe, or as I like to summarize it, I believe that I cannot believe. It's the only thing you believe, is that you can't believe. So, if salvation comes by believing, which we'll talk about in a minute, the belief is the work of the Spirit. Now, God so loved the world which means that what is God's nature? He is a loving God. Right, he's not like, if you ever read Greek mythology or if you read something like the, uh, the Odyssey and you look at the gods and how they behave in Greek mythology, they're very uh, vengeful and spiteful. They behave like your next door neighbor behaves or that guy you really don't like. That's how the gods behave. And... That's not the way that the true God behaves because his nature is contrary to that. Your nature is not one of love, but his is. So this is all motivated by his love for the world, which is not just to say earth. And this is not me saying Somewhere out there, there's a bunch of aliens, and Jesus died for aliens too. That's not what I'm, I'm not trying to use the Bible to talk about aliens. I don't really care about space, and I don't, maybe there's aliens, and maybe there aren't. I really don't care. 
we got enough problems here to worry about. Uh, but what I do mean is that this means cosmos. I spell it with a K because that's the Greek word. Uh, the entire cosmos, all of creation, everything that God brought into being, he loved it all so much that he sent his only begotten son. Now this is one reason why as Lutherans we affirm something called uh, ob, or, uh, universal atonement. That when Jesus dies, who is his blood shed for? All, everyone, because God loves to cosmo. He loves the world, or the, the cosmos. So we don't say that Jesus loves everybody, but then only dies for some because he knows that they're someday going to believe in him, because in a way that's sort of Jesus dying for the gratification of himself. Why would I die for someone who's not going to believe in me? What's the point in that? And you say, if, that, if you think that Jesus thinks that way, then you can't actually read any of the parables. Because who does the shepherd go after? The lost sheep. How many of the lost sheep? One. Goes after one, and how many does he leave behind? Yes, is that a, is that a good business? I'll ask the, our cattleman. If you had not, If you had 100 cattle, and one of them went away, would you leave behind every, all the rest of them and then go hunt however long it took to find that other one? Would that be a really good business decision? Yeah, I went out and got the one and killed the robber. <laughs> okay. You're thinking a little more than I, than I am. But if, it's just not a good business decision. It's not a good thing. It's not a wise thing. It's not a prudent thing. It's completely irrational. Because God is irrational. Why? Because he is a loving God. Love makes you irrational. Love makes you do crazy things. And if you don't believe me, just turn and look at your spouse and wonder why you're still married to them. <laughs> That'll answer your question. <laughs> if love were rational, you wouldn't want to stay married to the same person for however many years because you'd find enough faults and slights that you'd say, all right, I'm just done with it. I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to deal with the way that you are. I can leave and go find somebody else who's better. But see, you can't. This is part of why marriage is a reflection of God because it's all about the irrational behavior of love. And you aren't, as human beings, your number one uh, drive is not actually to be monogamous. Your drive is not to be loving. Which means that going into monogamy and entering into that irrational kind of love as opposed to the rational kind of love that weighs options and says, well, pros and cons of marrying this person. They're funny and uh, they're a good cook, but they are messy and uh, they don't think the same way I do. Well, let's weigh it. Is it worth it? Well, love doesn't measure the worth of things. It's irrational. Irrational love spends $10,000 to hold a block party because they found a penny under the couch cushion. I mean, if somebody invited me to that party, I'd go, but I sure would think, why are they throwing a party for that? doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's the whole point. God loves the whole world, the whole cosmos, and he gave his only son to the whole world. And just like the parable of the wicked vine tenant, or the, the wicked vineyard tenants, he sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet whom they beat and stone and mistreat. And then he says, well, surely they'll listen to my son. Is that a rational thought? Every other person that I've sent to them who's just a servant to me they've beaten and or killed. So the logical decision is, oh, I'll send them my only son. Of course not. It's completely irrational. But he does it. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet whom they kill and they stone, and then he sends his son, and he hands his son over to them, and his son is killed. 
It's completely irrational, but he does it for you. He loves you. He doesn't die with rational love on his mind that says, well, I'm sure glad that I'm performing this act for the few people who are actually going to decide that it was worth it for them. He doesn't care if it, I mean, he cares that it's worth it for you, but he doesn't walk around going, well, it's not going to be worth it to you, so I just guess I won't even offer it to you. It's silly. And it goes against his nature as being loving, because loving means he's irrational. And how does this salvation come? Well, by the Spirit, whoever believes in him, that is, in the Son, should not perish, which means what are you going to do without the Son? Perish, but instead have everlasting life. So when we talk about believing, and this ties in with a little bit of what I said last week about, you know, you don't go to a funeral here or that I conduct and hear me preach a sermon about this guy was saved because he believed in Jesus so well. Because that's, it, that's not faith, that's a work. So what do we mean when we say believes in him and why does it matter that it's the Holy Spirit? See, that's the key to everything. When we say believe, belief doesn't mean, it's not an intellectual thing where you go, oh, yes, you know what? I've decided, I think I believe in Jesus now. I've seen enough evidence that has convinced me that now I believe. This is the language of faith. Believing is faith. And if you know one thing about faith, you know that faith is active. Um, it's passive in that it receives and that it's worked upon, but it's active in that it follows, it does, it works. So you who believe by the power of the Spirit through the word. through the word, yes. That's just to test and make sure that you remember that the spirit and the word never are apart. Spirit and word go together like word and breath. Can't speak if you don't have air. This faith, this belief that comes through the word or through the spirit by the word is faith. And faith is active because it holds on to Jesus, it seeks Jesus, it clings to Jesus. What Jesus says, it does. It submits to Jesus. When Jesus says, this is good for you, that kind of belief says, okay, yes it is. Which is again why we say, you can't say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, and then never come to church, never seek the sacraments, never repent or confess your sins, and just say, well, it's between me and Jesus. Well, it is between you and Jesus, but where is Jesus found for you? Here in his body. So uh, that is what it means. It doesn't mean, well, I can do anything I want in life as long as I say I believe in Jesus. That's not belief in Jesus. That's not faith. Faith clings to Jesus. Faith goes where Jesus goes. If you want to follow Jesus, it means that when Jesus says, hey, go over here, you don't say, yeah, but I don't like it over there. I'll just watch you go, and then I can still say that I've seen you go there, and that's good enough for me. And he says, but it isn't good enough for me. Okay, let's speak this again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is the second article of the creed? And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? And I ask this follow-up question. What has this Lord done for you? Who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Okay, that I may be his own. Yes, just next, you'll have that next week. <coughs> I know you know it. Um, 
The reason that I don't just say, what does this mean, again, is because we've begun it. I, I'm breaking up the larger explanation into smaller bits, but I'm also showing you that there's a way to continue. If, you, if you've learned this by heart already, there's a way to continue working on it and keeping it there. And if you haven't, uh, then this is the way that you start working on it. Um, you can break up these answers into smaller bits. Well, let's see. What does this mean that I believe in Jesus? Well, I believe that he is my Lord. That's what I'm saying. Oh, what has this Lord done for you? Well, he has redeemed me. Oh, okay. You can even go like this. And who are you that you needed to be redeemed? A lost and condemned person. Oh, how did Jesus redeem you? Well, he purchased and won me from death and from the power of the devil. Oh, that's, but how did he do that? That's neat that he did it, but did he, did he, pay, did he pay money for it? No, not with gold or silver. See, you break it all up. Now, what does it mean that you are redeemed? Yeah, you're bought back. So it means that you belong to somebody else and when Jesus comes to redeem you, he buys you back. That's why there's the language of payment because, and actually the language of atonement. There is a, there is a debt that you are in and there is a payment that must be rendered and that payment is death. The cost of sin is death. It's not just that the consequence of sin is death, it's actually that there's a cost associated with it. If you want to sin and have a great time, you can do it, and you don't have to pay for it now, but the, the bill will hit you later. It's like trashing your hotel room. They're not going to know that you trashed your hotel room until after you've gone, so you don't get to just trash it and walk away and say, well, they don't know about it they will know about it, and that cost is going to hit you. Uh, so, you know, the life of a rock star is not so glamorous. Maybe just stay here. <clears throat> you were bought back. From whom were you bought? Yeah, in a sense, from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. So your sins own you. Your sins are your master. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. That's what it means. Sin is actually your master. And especially when you struggle with repetitive sins, if, if it doesn't feel like it's a struggle and you just keep doing the same thing again and again and again, that thing is actually your master because it tells you this is what you're going to do and you say, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Sin is your master. The world is your master because you care about what people think, because you care about pleasing people, because you care about not offending people, and the devil is your master because you bent the knee to him in Eden. And now he owns you, which brings it all to uh, the temptation of Jesus. All these, the kingdoms of the world, I will give to you. And people say, oh, well, Jesus, er, Jesus already owned them. He didn't. That was the whole point of him coming, was to buy it back, because he didn't own it. The temptation is, I own this right now, and you and I both know that I own it. And, we and I, you and I both know the, the cost that's associated with taking them back. And you and I both know that you don't want to do that. How about I just give them to you? Then you don't have to do any of that other stuff. And he says, no, I have to do this because if I don't, they're not actually being bought back. The debt's not being paid. And the devil says, well, I'll just forgive the debt. And Jesus says, there's a deeper magic. You don't just get to forgive the debt. It must be paid. It's an unforgivable debt. It must be paid. This is what Christ does, not with silver or gold, but with his blood. The blood of Jesus cries out like the blood of Abel. Justice. And then when you're covered with it, that's why the Lord sees in you, he sees Jesus. You'll hear it in the sermon today. You've got Jesus for skin and you've got Jesus for blood in your guts. The Father looks at you on the outside and sees Jesus and then he uses x-ray vision and looks at you on the inside and he says, boy, you're just Jesus all over, aren't you? Well, come on in. Okay. All right, to Sunday school. Pardon me? Out with you. Oh, yes. She never comes home from church hungry, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, 
her Sunday school teachers were giving Carolyn and I a report about her, and they said, oh, well, she's, she's a good girl, and she sits and listens, and, well, her favorite part is when we get the snacks out, though. Boy, she's a really good eater, and we thought, oh, my goodness, I hope she's at least paying attention. <laughs> She'll never look a snack horse in the mouth, that girl, that's for sure. Okay, it is a hymn Sunday today, uh, but we're going to do things slightly differently. One, because I want to. Two, because of the date. And three, because I did not have time to put together a hymn study in the traditional form. So, there are two handouts there. One of them is an article, and the other one is... Mine's not double-sided, but yours should be with words and with music on one side, on, on alternating sides. Now, the hymn is Rise Again Ye Lion-Hearted, which is a hymn from TLH number 470. How many of you already know this hymn? Oh, we found a TLH hymn that you don't know. I shouldn't, but I always relish these. Because I, always, I think back to when people tell me about, oh, you pick some good old hymns. And, I, and then I, and I pick some TLH hymns, and they go, good, those are the good old hymns. And I say, okay, I'll pick some good old hymns. And then I do. And then people don't know the good old hymns. So, this is a newer of the good old hymns. I'll say it that way. You can see the translator is Martin Franzman. You should know the name Martin Franzman. He uh, was a theologian. He taught at the St. Louis Seminary for a little bit and then was taken over to Westfield House at Cambridge in England, and he taught there then. And funny story, when he got to Cambridge... For the first time, somebody said, and when was your ordination? And he said, oh, I've never been ordained. And they stared at him with slack-jawed disbelief and said, wait a minute, you've been a theology professor all these years. You've been writing hymnody, and you're not ordained? We called you to teach here. You're not ordained? And he said, nope, I thought I assumed everybody knew. Nobody's ever asked me before. And then they held an ordination service for him and they ordained him so that he could start teaching. So actually, Martin Franzman, wise as he was, and such a good contributor, especially to our hymnody, uh, was ordained very late in his life. Now, uh, one Martin Franzman hymn that you know for sure, O God, the Lord of Heaven and Earth, which is another one that we had for a hymn of the month. Ba, O God, the Lord of heaven and earth, thy living finger never wrote. You know that one. It's kind of hard to sing, but not really. Um, so Franzman's hymnody is dense. What? It is dense. Dense. Dense, yeah. Uh, heavy, weighty. There is a lot of meat in a Franzman hymn. And th there are many hymn writers who, have, who write very dense hymns. Um, not everybody does. Not every hymn in our hymnal is as dense as others. Luther hymns tend to be dense. Gerhard hymns tend to be dense in a slightly different way. Franzman hymns are incredibly dense. And they almost feel more dense because he... He was born in 1940, so uh, he uses modern language and modern imagery, or I guess more modern imagery and more modern language, which somehow to us as contemporaries makes his hymnody seem more dense than some of the older stuff. Almost like we expect that the older stuff will be more dense and then assume that the new stuff won't be, and then Franzman says, oh no, it'll be just as dense. Franzman hymns are almost too much for you to sing, honestly. There is so much meat in his hymns that when you sing it, it goes by too quickly, and then you don't fully have the opportunity to digest what has just come out of your mouth. So Franzman hymns are also very good candidates for 
uh, prayer and for theological reflection if you just sit and read the text and let it you know, ruminate on it and, and meditate on it as just text. And the more that you do that, the more you start to grasp it when you sing it. Now, this particular hymn, this is the hymn for this month because I'm trying to keep the hymns focused on what season we are in for the liturgical year. And today is, of course, Marla Voltmer's favorite day in the whole church year, which is the Feast of All Saints. Are we doing the Athanasian Creed? No. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. No, today's, that's, that's Trinity. Yeah, we do the Athanasian Creed on Trinity, but it'll be a real treat this coming year. Yeah, one reason why I didn't put together an actual hymn handout was because this was the week where I planned the entire year in advance, which is hell for me. <laughs> I love you all, and I love the hymns of our church, and I love the liturgical year, but cramming an entire year into one week is very difficult. And bless her heart, Leanne Olenzalen came into my office on Wednesday night, and I was working right up until the time of midweek, and I was in there, and I was in the middle of Lent, planning hymns and services for Lent. And Leanne Olenzalen, bless her heart, she came in and started asking me about Christmas, and the Christmas Eve, and the service of lessons and carols, and she said, well, what about these hymns, and is this, and I said, what, what? We're in Lent, don't you? What, are you, what are you talking about? Christmas is so far away. And she said, no, we're in November. And I thought, oh dear, oh right, November. Yeah, it just, everything, everything, uh, everything goes in a handbasket to a not fun place. And uh, then they messed with my time today. And everybody says, we get, oh, we're gaining an hour. And I say, no, we're not. We're just moving the day and then me and the cats all have a very hard time of it. <laughs> We're just up at 4 a.m. instead of 5 a.m. So uh, nothing has changed except that it's brighter. Anyway, this is for the liturgical season, which is All Saints. And, uh, I, and I jest with you in, in all uh, in all friendship and love. <laughs> okay. Today is the Feast of All Saints, which is, in the modern world, it's a, it's a combination of All Saints Day and All Souls Day. All Saints Day is about the like, canonized saints. All Souls Day is about the commemoration of the faithful departed. We kind of put them together. November 1st, November 2nd. And we're, we're observing it today because November 1st came and it was on a Monday. Um, and we didn't really, you know, we've got Reformation. So we fit the things in when we can. But today's All Saints, we've got the commemoration of the faithful departed. It's a very long list this year, which it's, there's 10 people on the list, which is for us a pretty big list. Uh, so this is our hymn then for the month, which from the TLH is a hymn uh, you can see at the top, the communion of the saints, which would translate really into the LSB. We don't have, I, I like that language of communion of the saints because it's creedal. In the LSB, we have the church militant and the church triumphant in the late 600s here in the book. Um, so that's about where it, would, where it would fit in here. A hymn... Uh, about the faithful departed, but specifically, in fact, talking about the, the martyrs of the faith and the people who were faithful unto death, which is part of what we're going to talk about today is what does it mean to be faithful unto death? Why does the church take the time to even celebrate All Saints Day at all? Why does it matter? Um, and I love the text, by the way. Rise again, ye lion-hearted. I mean, that... I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear that and when I look at this text, it gets my blood hot and it, it makes me ready to, to go out and brawl with sin, death, and the devil, of course. <laughs> my, my grandmother always used to joke because one time I told her, I said, it, it was in college, I said, if I ever have a really, really, really bad day, at school, 
I get on the bus to come home and I take out my iPod and I put in my headphones and I listen to some, some Highland pipe and drum. And I said, by the time I get back to my car, I'm, I'm about ready to pick up a broadsword and start running in against the English. <laughs> and she, you know, she hasn't let me forget it. Oh, sounds like you've been listening to the pipe and drum every now and then if I would, if I would come home in a bad mood. Well, this is not that. This is, I, I am ready to fight the good fight. I am ready to wield myself in the armor that God has given me and take up that sword of truth. And I am ready to let them tie me to a stake and burn it. I'm ready to let them hang me from a rope until I'm dead. I am ready to have them put me on a griddle or feed me to beasts or to chop my head off. I'm ready for it. Let them do it. Come on. Come and get me. What's the worst that they can possibly do? That's what, this, is, this is the kind of text that just, and this is the kind of day in the church year where you can't help but walk out of church today and say to yourself, come get me, world. Come get me, Satan. Don't I look delicious to you? Come and take a taste of this. We'll see if you like it. You know, you're like, if you watch those nature documentaries, you know that the animals that are brightly colored are the ones you want to stay away from and the animals that haven't learned that let yet learn it pretty quickly the bird that goes and eats the monarch butterfly learns a, learns an important lesson as its stomach is heaving that's what you are to Satan come and get me have a taste chew me up and spit me out because I know what's gonna happen to your stomach when you're done with me and this is the kind of text and this is the kind of day that's so great for that. Rise again, ye lion-hearted. Now, let's look at this image. I don't have any recordings because wouldn't you know it, there aren't any re recordings of this hymn from the Lutheran church. They're only from the, I've only found any from Presbyterian churches. So at least hymn-wise, the Presbyterian church has at least one thing going for them. It's, they've got this hymn, but the tune is slightly different. So I can't play them for you because... It's a different tune. And I'm joking about the Presbyterians because I know that your mother came from the Presbyterian church. So I, I mean no ill will. Um, I love this image. The tech, why is the text for all saints, the gospel text, the Beatitudes from Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, those, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Have you ever thought about that? That describes the saints. Yes, it does describe the saints, but who does it describe even above the saints? Jesus. Describes Jesus. So it describes the saints because it's describing Jesus and the saints are in Jesus. But Jesus has done it all first. This is, again, that Baptist artist who goes by the name Full of Eyes. And again, as a pitch to you, we have two of these books downstairs in the library if you'd like to check them out and look at them. They're beautiful. Also, the library just got a dandy new subscription to Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. So we'll get that quarterly, and there's a brand new one down there. So if you're interested in looking at that and reading anything in there, well, it's all there for you. Now, of course... This fella here doesn't matter. How do you know he's a bad guy? Okay, he's red, and where is he? On the outside, and what color is the outside? Dark. What does that make you think of? Oh, okay, but I think, of, think of gospel text, something that Jesus says that he has talked about in the parables. Cast out into the outer darkness. Cast out into the outer darkness. And the, here's the thing, folks. The outer darkness doesn't mean that, oh, I'm going to come out here and I'm going to suffer and it's going to be terrible for me while I'm here, but I'm certainly not going to try and do anything to those people. Oh, no. The outer darkness is a horrible, horrible place, and it, they're always coming after you who are in because they don't want you to be in. They want you to be out. Well, doggone it. If I've got to be here, he's going to be here too. So... 
you see, whoops, you see the outline of Christ here with this martyr of the faith. She is pierced through. What's in Jesus' hands? Yes, Christ eternally crucified. If Jesus isn't eternally crucified, he's worthless to you. Can you see that all right, Morris? I can. There, okay. So there's Jesus. There are the, there are the, there's the nail mark. The spear is going into this woman, but who does it go through? Oh, goes through Christ. Isn't that beautiful? The saint is being pierced through and the spear comes first through Christ's side and then into hers. Rhonda? Emily was sitting here before they went downstairs. She asked me what that was a picture of. Well, I couldn't see for that picture. Uh-huh. But I saw the piercing. Yeah, I said, well, it's got to have something to do with Jesus because it looks like yes. that it, remember, his side was pierced. Yes, correct. So, but I couldn't see the Jesus, so now I'll tell him more about it. Yes, good. Um, Here's Christ with his wounds. You are brought into Christ. The wounds of Christ are your wounds. Christ's stigmata are your stigmata <clears throat> to bear. Uh, blessed are you, not because you're so great and dandy. You know, there was an old uh, interpretation of that in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that that was a passage about law. That the Beatitudes were about telling you how you needed to be if you wanted to be blessed. Do you want to be blessed, sir? Well, you better be poor in spirit. Hey, you, guy, you want to be blessed? You better hunger and thirst for righteousness. Ma'am, would you like to be blessed? Well, you know, you better go out and get persecuted if you really want to be blessed. And then, and then what does it turn this into? Oh, it's terrible. Oh, shoot, what am I going to have to do for the Lord to bless me? And that's Lutherans taught that. They taught that at the seminary. And the guy who first started talking about this and saying, no, 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 you've got it all backward. This is all about Jesus first. The guy who started that was brought up on heresy charges. Brought up on heresy charges in the big synod courtroom. We've come a long way. But you're joined to Christ. Christ's wounds are your wounds because you are in him. And as you are in him, the texts of his Sermon on the Mount, those Beatitudes, apply to you because they apply to him. Are you poor in spirit? Yes. Why? Because you're in Christ and Jesus is poor in spirit and he makes you to be poor in spirit. Are you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Yes, you do. Why? Only because you are in Christ and Christ hungers and thirsts for righteousness and because he does, you do too. You are all blessed because you are in Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment and the source and the content of the Beatitudes. And here he is. And one last thing, we talk about this a lot. What does this lady have on her head? Yeah, she's got a crown. But if you look at the color and the shapes, what does it look like is on her crown? Drops of blood. Now, okay, sure, the crown of thorns. Well, the crown of thorns, you're going to bleed when you get it. Well, yes, yes. There's something, you're on the right track with that. The point of this is to say, what is your most priceless treasure? The blood of Christ. That even in your death, when you come before the heavenly throne, you are arrayed in riches, but the riches are all the riches of Christ. So when we confess in the creed here, in the second part of the second article, how, did he, how has he purchased and won you? Well, not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood. His blood and, and his body, but, and, and this is one reason why the Eucharist is such a big deal, that is the most valuable thing that you have in this life. It is the greatest treasure that you could possibly hope to find. Forget winning the lottery or publisher's clearinghouse, you've got the blood of Jesus. And that is your richness, your adornment, the rubies in your crown. Uh, the ring that I wear here on my right hand is a replica of uh, the wedding band that Martin Luther designed. 
and the stone in the center is a garnet because, and it was originally a ruby, but this one is a garnet, but the, you get the idea that it is a red stone. Why? Because the, the red jewel, the red stone, the only piece of color is the thing that reflects the precious treasure that you have, which is the blood of Jesus. And a, a, around it is wrapped the crown of thorns, and when you look down into it, from the top down, it looks like a chalice holding wine or blood. And all of that is for a reason, because the blood of Christ is your greatest treasure. It is what adorns you, and it is the, one that, the thing that is your, rich, your richness. So, being faithful unto death then, as this would certainly depict, and th I like this too because um, if you read any of the early Christian accounts of martyrs, and we'll get some of those in the library someday, but you read what the early Christians wrote and the histories about, well, this happened and this, this is how this person was martyred and this is what they said and blah, blah, blah. One thing is fairly common in the martyrdom accounts, and that is as they're being killed, they, they look up to heaven. Their eyes are lifted up. And all the pagans that comment on it say, boy, it's really strange. It's like they're looking at something that isn't there. And a better way to say it is, they're looking at something you can't see. This is something you find around deathbeds too. People talk about sightless eyes when you're on a deathbed and the person, they, they, their eyes often stare and they say, oh, well, they, they can't really see you. They're not looking at you. They just, they're in a different place. Their eyes are just open. Well, don't ever tell that to a pastor because a pastor will say, maybe you just don't understand. Maybe there's more here than medicine and science. Maybe this person isn't looking at us anymore because they're seeing through us because there's something much better in this room to look at. Maybe that's the case. And I firmly believe it. I think you spend enough time around the dying and you can't help but believe it. And here I love that Christ is cupping her head in his hands and she's looking up. And you think to yourself, you know, Christ is outlined here on purpose because the two things that matter are this guy and that girl and she's pierced through and she dies. They don't see Christ there, but she does. That's faith. This right here is a depiction of being faithful unto death. That even when they you set the fire, they dip you in tar and use you as the torches to light the gladiatorial combat in the arena, there is something greater to cling to, and that is Christ. That's one reason why we celebrate this day. Um, death is the death in the faith is the culmination of your baptism. How do we know that? Death in the faith is your, the culmination of your baptism. Why would I say that? How do, how do I know that? Yes, we always begin with baptism. And then, of course, there's the funeral Paul that identifies this person as somebody who is baptized. Think about something earlier, a different rite of the church typically undergone by children. It's after baptism and after catechesis. Confirmation? Yes. What's part of the confirmation rite? What do you ask those youth? You're reaffirming your baptism. Yes, but what is... Will you be faithful even unto death? Yes, by the help of God. That is the Christian life, the life of living the faith and walking the way, even if it means hardship and, you know, Lord have mercy, if it means death. So even if you die quietly in your sleep, that is still the culmination of your baptism because you are an adult in the faith and you lived in the faith up until the point that you died. This is why it doesn't matter, you know, well, who was a better Christian? Me or Mother Teresa? 
You say, who's, who's the better Christian? I help out with the food drops, but uh, Mother Teresa went to a leper colony. Who's the better Christian? Yes! That's the best answer you could have possibly given. Who cares? Does it matter? No. Is your faithfulness as a Christian dependent upon the, you know, the weight of the good things that you did? No. Is, you, do, do you live as a Christian? Or do you do good works? Well, yeah, sure, obviously. Man looks at your works and says, Mother Teresa is much better than that Pastor Ferguson fella. He just walks down the road. She traveled around the world. He's, a, he's dog spit compared to Mother Teresa. He doesn't have a saint before his name last time I checked. <laughs> Probably never will. But she, the one thing that we have in common is faithful unto death. That's the thing. You are faithful unto death. Do you live the faith? Do you love the Lord? Do you receive the Lord? Do you seek him? Do you do what he says? Do you submit to him? Faithful unto death. And on this day, we remember all of the people that have gone on before us who were faithful unto death, especially those from our body here that we now miss because we love them, but also all of our mothers and fathers in the faith who have gone on before us, all of them, because they all were faithful unto death. And the day isn't about the people who have died. The people is about Christ who has redeemed them and who holds them and who grants peace even as we mourn their death and who is the source and content of the very faith to which they clung in life. Bill. I remember Pastor Selmeyer uh, in a sermon once where you were talking about the balance of how many Mother Teresa did more good than you did. Yes. And Selmeyer said, but without faith, how do you know if you've done, if this is enough, or if Mother Teresa did enough, or, or St. Paul did enough? You don't know because it's not dependent on how many things you did, it's dependent on faith. And the yeah. is, how do you know with that, that assurance that you have through faith? And without the faith, where are you? Oh gosh. I did a lot of good stuff this week, but it wasn't quite enough. I got to do more next week. Yes. That, that I don't know what I've done without. That. Yeah, and that's a that's a good thing too because what's the difference between the law, what the law does to you and what the gospel does to you? The law binds you, and the gospel sets you free. So if you're under the law, what works? What good works do you do? If, the, if, if you're bound to the law, what good works do you do? You don't. You do. Use the, this is, I'm not being anti-Semitic, but use the Jews as your example, okay? The Jews live a very law-oriented life. And what, law, what do they do with that law-oriented life? Follow the rules. Follow the rules up to... It's sufficiency. I only do as much as I have to. And I've told you this story. I met a Jew and had a great conversation with him, but was stunned because he was so proud of all of the loopholes that he found in the law about how to get around things, like I'm not allowed to trim my beard. But if I use this kind of a clipper, it's not considered a trim, it's considered a cut. And I can cut, I just can't trim. So, so then I get it and I get what I want. And I say, well, you know, what's the point in having the law if your entire life is just focused on how you can shirk the law? At what, how much do I, am I gonna do under the law? Only what I have to. That's, see, when it comes to works, the law binds you. The law says, this is what you need to do. And you say, okay, well then that's what I'll do. I'll do what I need to do. And the gospel sets you free. The gospel says, it's not about what you need to anymore. It's about what you get to. So you get to do, so, you can do so much more when you're actually free in the gospel than you would under the law because it's not what I have to do. It's all about how much I get to give, how much I get to do. 
A good example is tithing. Um, how much do you have to tithe according to the law? Yeah, the law says 10%. That's your tithe. But then you go to the New Testament and everybody's free in the gospel. And what's the range of tithing? In the book of Acts. Yeah, between 10 and 100%. <laughs> That's what I always tell the people. And they say, you don't get to tell me that I'm supposed to tithe. My money's between me and God. And I say, you're right, anywhere between 10 and 100%. That's between you and God. But up to the 10%, well, God, you know, God says blah, 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 blah. But I love that. You see people, oh, well, I'd never give 100%. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's about what you get to do. You don't have to say, you know, if you want to give more than 10% or, or tithe more than 10%, you may. You don't have to go, well, the law only says 10%. I'm only going to do my 10%. Now you're free to say, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? I've got a little bit extra. Maybe I'll bump it up. Maybe I'll go to you know, 25%. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll bump it up to 15%. Hell, maybe I'll do 50%. I've got nothing to lose. You know, Whatever. It's, you have a freedom now in the gospel, things you get to do. Now, there's, this article here is actually, funny enough, written by a classmate of mine at the seminary. Uh, he's kind of flowery with his language. Not all of it needs to be that flowery. Essentially, part of what this article is saying is that he was preparing for the martyrdom of John the Baptist. See, here's flowery language. The decolation of St. John the Baptist. You can just say martyrdom or beheading. You don't have to say decolation, make everybody have to look it up in the dictionary. Uh, so he's preparing for the service, and he said, you know, the LSB has a lot of good hymns, but they're different. Because one thing when you start going back to like the TLH and some of these older hymnals is the emphasis on living the faith and being faithful unto death. And you can praise a saint for being a saint. You can say, this guy is great because he's a martyr and he should be my example because I should want to die just like he died. And guess where that idea comes from, at least for us Lutherans, that, that that's how we should look at the saints. The Augsburg Confession. We're supposed to look at the saints as pure examples and models of holy Christian living, godliness, so that we look at the saints and go, I want to be like him. Are they sinners? Well, duh, yeah, they're sinners. But just like how you remember the saints, not for any of their sins, but for the good that they've done, that's how it's going to be in heaven. You're going to know everybody only for the good that they've done. But here on earth, when we look at the saints before us, we remember them in that way because, excuse me, it is another guide for us to say, here's how a Christian is supposed to live. Here's how you can live a life of godliness. And you say, I'm going to follow that example, and I'm going to try and do that too. So, but the problem is, when you start to get into some of the newer stuff, Lutherans have gotten afraid. It's not okay for us to remember a saint because they were good people anymore. Well, because that's works righteousness. So now we have to remember them. We, we can only celebrate the evangelist John because he wrote a gospel. But we can't celebrate him because he was a martyr in will but not in deed. He would have gone to that stake if, if they had taken him. But he didn't die. He was boiled in pitch, but he didn't die. So they said, well, all right, well, to Patmos with him, and they just kicked him off. Well, every single one of his brothers in the faith died. And he lamented because he wished that he could be put to death like them too, and he wasn't. But we can't talk about how he's good like that anymore because people are afraid of it being works righteousness. And that's what this article is sort of about. Because this rise again ye lion-hearted him is certainly not afraid of that coming off that way. It's okay to give honor to the saints. And it's okay to, to you know, praise the people who were faithful unto death. That's part of the day today, is that we're praising all the people who went before us for the fact that they were faithful unto death. You don't have to be a big hotshot evangelist that was boiled in pitch and sent off to a, an, an island of exile in order to be remembered uh, as someone faithful unto death. You can be Jay Jasper. You can be the Jay Jasper that confessed until the day he died 
I'm a Lutheran. You can be Verona Shiding, who up until the day she died said, I have nothing and thanks be to God for all of the good things he has given me and everything good that he has done for me. That's a saint if I ever saw one. Amen. So let's look at this hymn. I, oh yeah, the backside. This is a, down, a downside of the TLH. TLH only includes four stanzas. There are actually 13. Like every good old Lutheran hymn. Got you know, to have at least seven, but 13 is the better number. If you want to see the, where that came from, it actually came from this book, which I have, if you ever want to borrow it. It's called Walther's Hymnal, and this is the hymnal from the early days of the church in the 1800s um, that then came to America. This, these are the collection of hymns that were common use for them. It doesn't have any tunes, it just has all the texts, and then it tells you what tune would have gone with it, and then you can just look up the tune and sing it. I like this also because it doesn't have the tunes, because you know me, I'm a fan of the hymnals that don't have tunes because it forces you to actually learn the tunes by heart. And then when you're not singing the hymns, you can actually use the text as prayers, just like the old days when you were confirmed or baptized or whatever, and they'd give you that little hymnal. They didn't, we didn't have hymnals in the church. You had to bring your hymnal to church, and you had that little hymnal. And I've got a couple of them that are just treasures to me. And you open them up, like the hymnal of the, yeah, the Evangelical Lutheran Congregations of the Unaltered Augsburg Confession. Whoa, I'm a lot happier that we're just LCMS now. <laughs> but so for, of 1916, I've got one from 1916 that's got all of the hymns in it, but no, none of the music. And the best thing that CPH has ever published is the, the travel edition or the, the pastor edition of the LSB, which is this big. So you have to have good eyes or really thick specs to see it. But it's this big. It contains all of the psalms and the text from all of the hymns in the entire hymn book in one tiny little book. And if you know your hymns, you can just take that tiny, tiny, tiny little thing with you and open it up to the number and you don't need the music because you already know the tune and you can just sing it looking at the words or you can just pray the text. Best thing CPH has ever published is that tiny little hymnal. Now... I'll sing the first stanza and we'll sing the others. The tunes, it's a, it's a militant tune. Rise again, ye lion-hearted, saints of early Christendom. Whither is your strength departed? Whither gone your your oh, sorry? Whither gone your martyrdom? Lo, love's light is on them. Glory's flame upon them, and their will to die doth quell in the Lord and Prince of Hell. All together, three, uh, two, three, and four. These the men by fear unshaken, facing danger dauntlessly. These no witching lust hath taken, lust that lures to vanity. Mid the roar and rattle of tumultuous battle, in desire they soar above all that earth would have them love. Great of heart, they know no turning. Honor gold, they laugh to scorn. Quench desires within them burning by no earthly passion torn. Mid the lion's roaring, Songs of praise outpouring. Joyously they take their stand 
on yon Reno's bloody sand. Would to God that I might even as the martyred saints of old, with the helping hand of heaven, steadfast and in battle bold. O my God, I pray thee, in the combat stay me, grant that I may ever be loyal, staunch, and true to thee. See you at the altar, dear saints of God.